0: Hi listeners, I'm Lee and I'm Amaya and you are listening to Fem South. Mother and child today we're going to be discussing the next book that we're reading in our book club, Margaret Atwood's The Handmaid's Tale. Please join us for a really interesting conversation where we break down her book and look at it as it relates to the current Me Too movement. Here we go. Here we go. Let's just jump right in. There's so much to talk about. (laughs) We're gonna try and keep a a positive outlook on the world. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I mean, this is a pretty dark and depressing possibility uh, that seems kind of all too real. So we need to make sure that we keep a positive attitude. (laughs) I also
1: think that it, it hits really close to home. Being both, you know, women doing this podcast and in a feminist book club. And living in the United States right now, and with all the things that are going on, you know, it brings up so much for us that, frankly, we kind of want to ignore, but we can't. And so, you know, we're going to try <laughs> to address a lot of the things in this book, but it just goes so deep. It goes so deep.
0: Right, and I would even add to that, living in the South, too, because there's also something about this book that seems to speak particularly to some of the issues that we face here in the South, especially with religious, conservative, right-wing political ideas, and of course
1: the racism and the sexism that still very much exist.
0: So <laughs> what has happened is is a, a theocratic terrorist group has basically taken over which taken over the United States
1: you want to explain what theocratic is
0: well uh, theocratic as I know it I'm <laughs> not gonna give you a textbook definition <laughs> but it's a government that is run with a particular religious ideology in mind as a source of control hmm and enforcing a particular religious ideology in this case, it seems to be a very specific evangelical Christian group that has taken over mm-hmm. and has enforced its will upon and entrapped and enslaved the women and basically taken civilization back to the puritanical days of the witch hunt and puritanical um, religious theocracy in the United States. Mm-hmm. And so we find, of course, our character, the main character whose name is June in, they've given her the name June in the actual uh, television series, but the book never gives her a name. Her name is Alfred, but her actual real name is never given, which I think is interesting. Um, and the story is being told as she's writing this in her journal, what's happening to her. So we learn about everything through her perspective. So in the sense we also are sort of limited to what we know about what's happening in the world as she's starting to discover it or as she's thinking back mm-hmm. so it's an interesting way of telling the story and so it's hard to explain but it's it's a dystopian society and our dystopian world and women have been Well, many things have happened. I guess the premise of what actually happened in the first place, and I'm going to take some of these ideas from the audio interview that I listened to uh, in 1985 with Peter Growski interviewing Margaret Atwood about this book. And this was before it became so popular as it is now, and of course before the series started. So I felt like it was a really nice interview that was focused specifically on how she developed the ideas for the story versus now how she's explaining a lot of other questions and how it relates to the Me Too movement and things like that. Right and and Margaret was a Canadian looking at the
1: United States and actually basing the novel on U.S. history and politics in comparison to Canada at the time.
0: Well, and she says specifically in that interview, and I've I've read this in another interview, is that she was basically gathering information in news stories and news clippings, and everything in the book, she says, is something that has actually happened either in the United States or in the whole world. So not Mm -hmm. necessarily specific to the United States could be something that's happened in another part of the world, but everything in the story is based on some kind of actual thing happening. Nothing is fiction or made up when she started writing this she asked herself a series of questions one of them was how would you take over the united states so she says really um one way that you would likely do it would be to use the word of god Mm -hmm. as your sort of source of authority Mm -hmm. and that's interesting because that's of course what the puritans did Mm -hmm. and that's really you can go back even further using religion as a source of authority But even now with like the right wing conservative Christians who are have a problem with any other religions besides their own and believe that the United States is a Christian religion or should be a Christian religion. There's this sort of idea that anything outside of that paradigm is un-American. Right. And in the book, it's
1: it's you know, it is religions pitted against each other. And it's not just God, right? It's also fear, fear-based society, which is happening now and happened in the past and is happening in the book.
0: Right. I mean, Aunt Lydia really is the character that is that has that presence of the old Southern uh, preacher that would preach hell and fire, right? That one's relationship with God was one based on fear, And that's a very old Southern tradition. I mean, I grew up in that tradition as well. Uh, When I was little, I would go to my friends' churches who were, you know, Baptist or some other sort of sect here. And I would oftentimes hear those kinds of sermons, Mm -hmm. you know, certainly fear-based sermons. And so that's how you control people that is through that fear and Aunt Lydia she's such a, a creepy, interesting character, because on the one hand, she is torturing the women. And on the other hand, she's telling them, but you must love God, and you must have faith in God. So it's this twisted, psychotic, religious ideology that motive seems to motivate Aunt Lydia. Mm-hmm. And Aunt Lydia seems to be excited there's something about that is that's exciting to her the power that she sort of wields through fear and through torture is scary i mean that fear pervades throughout the whole
1: book right it's like in gilead there are no more homosexuals there's basically it's all white really i mean in the in the in the series i think
0: well, in the series, I haven't seen it. The, um, the couple, <laughs> Luke is yeah. in in uh, June, are a biracial couple, and they have a biracial child. In the book, uh, there really isn't any mention of their race necessarily. I don't think Margaret Atwood maybe was as focused on race at that time as you know, the series is trying to make it a little bit more modern, Mm -hmm, I think. mm -hmm. So race then kind of becomes an issue, but they've gotten rid of all the homosexuals. They've gotten rid of all the intellectuals. They've gotten rid of all the abortion doctors. I mean, certainly they've killed all the, um, the professors and things like that. So anybody with any kind of influence or anyone with any kind of cultural or racial or sexual identification other than the prescribed... Christian white family paradigm has been removed or has been enslaved in some way Mm -hmm. in this book. So there's definitely a sort of class division that is prominent. So you see the commanders holding a high position and you see the commander's wives holding a higher position. And then you have the people that are working in the house. So like the Martha's, and the, aunt, the aunts and the handmaids. There's a class system that now is happening. And with, through that class system, you have women turning against women, women pitted against one another, which is also really interesting and really scary because I think women now are just starting to realize that we cannot turn against one another. So you're seeing a lot more solidarity I think, among women, especially with the Women's March and the different movements that are happening now. One of the things that I see is a new sort of solidarity. Whereas before, when I was much younger, and none of this was really happening, I always felt like women could be pitted against one another through competition, through jealousy, through all kinds of different areas. We certainly were not supporting one another, I think, the way that we are now.
1: No, and that's a really good control tactic. Yeah. Right? It's like, if you can pit us against each other...
0: We will take each other down. <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: right? And, and Margaret talk, talks about that, because that's historically how things have been done. You go into another country, you get some of those countrymen on your side, you pit them against their own countrymen, and you have a much better you know, opportunity of controlling the population there. Right, and that's sort of in the book that's very clear with the ants controlling the handmaids. Right. You know, women against women.
0: Right, and how Serena Joy just has absolutely no human empathy whatsoever towards the handmaid at all. And none of them seem to. I mean, there seems to be an implication, well, at least in the TV series, that some of the commander's wives might be a little bit more... uh, sympathetic or at least kind but I don't I don't think I would go so far as to say kind because certainly they don't see these women as people
1: and going back to what you're saying about solidarity now among women with the women's marches the me too movement and other things that are going on all even this book club you know and the women's groups that are all over the place that I'm seeing pop up you know it's like that gives hope actually because it's it's not as dystopic as Margaret outlines that we actually are changing things in that we're not we're trying not to compete anymore we're moving into this new paradigm of collaboration and it is happening women are coming together and they're realizing that we need to be together in solidarity as long as the Me Too movement doesn't go too far.
0: <laughs> yeah, so that's, <laughs> that's a whole other thing. That's another thing. That's one of the other big topics that we really kind of wanted to talk about, but it's a little bit overwhelming. But the Me Too movement and this idea that it's going too far, I think really echoes what Margaret Atwood Wood was sort of bringing up with the this the sort of phrase that keeps being said, I think aunt Lydia says this one phrase, freedom to do versus freedom from That's sort of aunt Lydia's reminder to the women. And what because does that mean to you? Previously there was, I mean, apparently there must've been like a heavy rape culture going on, which is again, sort of like what's happening now with the me too movement is that we're starting to identify and speak out against sexual assault and sexual harassment. Well, in this book, That had been happening, and in the little snippets that we get of um, Alfred's relationship with her mother, that her mother was involved with those kinds of protests early on, and so she's burning magazines and anything that's really seems to be exploitative of women, and she's a part of that kind of resistance, her mother, and so June has a few flashbacks to that, so we seem to get this sort of progression of after that what happens, and, um, and then Aunt Lanny, of course, makes that statement at least once in this book and certainly in the second series. That's in the, one of the things that she tells all the handmaids again. And what does that mean? It seems to mean that in order to get freedom from being harassed, you have to create a world in which everything is so controlled that there is no possibility for that to happen. And then so the perk to this society that they've created for the women is that now they're safe from all of that Mm -hmm. but of course that's a sick twisted safety who wants to be safe from all that if it means being you know enslaved and trapped and had all your freedoms completely taken away from you right so the so then the current question is
1: with the me too movement and i think this is starting to come up and even margaret atwood herself is questioning
0: this. Well, she's definitely involved in this mm-hmm. th- this uh, debate now. Right? right.
1: So, you know, are we going too far with the Me Too movement? With women coming out and speaking against the abuses, are they, is it effective? Is it an effective way? Or are we just using this as an opportunity to, you know, gain power over a gender that's had power over us for millennia. Is this accurate? And yes, a lot of abuses that are coming out are very true and valid. But are we going too far? Are we teaming up against the other to gain, you know, help me out here.
0: (laughs) To gain some sort of sense of um, power The idea of sort of dismantling the system altogether, you know, dismantling the patriarchy. How does that happen? How does one begin to do that? Well, it seems like this Me Too movement has given us a platform, maybe a a platform where people are now paying attention in a way that they were not paying attention before. It's a really complex question because I have so many mixed emotions about the Me Too movement. On the one hand, I'm very excited that women can now speak up about sexual assault and sexual harassment, And I think that those are very important topics and women should be able to be believed and be valued when they do speak out and be protected. Um, But are they? Well, that's That's the the thing. thing. If you have a backlash, then you've opened it up for those women to now be even more fearful because now they don't even have the support of necessarily all the women on their side, maybe not even all the feminist women on their side. So now when they speak up, now they maybe have to somehow justify it in a way that they didn't before because people are a little bit more, um, what's the word, uh, hesitant to believe them or you know, want to say, well, I guess it depends on the situation. I mean, certainly there's a fine line. Well, I think we're actually going back to the, the 60s and the
1: 70s when feminists were just seen as crazy, negative complainers about the world and all of a sudden now women are starting to come out in the me too movement but there's this backlash in the same way I think that it happened before
0: well yeah and it's an interesting backlash because there's this fear that I guess men can be attacked or maybe women can use this as an opportunity to get rid of a man in a position or that so much can be ruined about that person through just the allegation So there's, I guess, the the power of the allegation alone is enough to ruin somebody. So if you're going to start to speak out about somebody, it should absolutely be with the right reason. I don't know. Because as soon as I say that, I'm like, you know, this is what's interesting about the Me Too movement, is that there are so many variations of sexual harassment and men abusing their power through sex that what what we're really seeing is that it isn't so black and white. It isn't so clearly assault. It isn't so clearly even rape. I mean, there are so many nuances that women have had to endure for so long. Absolutely. And even the smallest thing, I mean, even in my own life, I've experienced so much sexual harassment when I was in the military. And I even now would feel very um, hesitant to speak out about that. But the fact that it happened, the fact that I endured years of sexual harassment that I wouldn't at that time had even had a voice to speak to because nobody was speaking out about it. So I wouldn't have even considered telling anybody back then. At least now people can speak out. And as far as I'm concerned, all the times where I was had to endure sexual harassment was really because It was so prevalent that men really felt like there was nothing, that they weren't doing anything wrong. So if nothing else, the Me Too movement is saying, hey, we don't have to put up with this anymore, and this is wrong. This isn't normal. As long as we can start to be clear
1: about what we're actually fighting against, because this is the problem that I think Margaret Atwood is actually addressing as well currently is that if it's only about sexual harassment, right, and that's very unclear what is truly sexual harassment, then there can be groups of women, this backlash is happening, that say, oh, wait, wait, she wasn't
0: harassed. On some level, you cannot just start attacking men for the sake of attacking men. And so is this an attack on men in general? It's just just a way for women to... um, I guess, get their way. I mean, should we ever question these women or do we just stand behind them in solidarity with no questions asked? Right, and Margaret says that we don't
1: actually have the systems in place to deal appropriately with this. But I wanted to talk about the anger issue because, you know, it's valid that women are angry. It's valid that the feminists in the 60s and 70s were angry. It's valid that we're angry now. You know, it is absolutely valid. You know, it's funny. It's like so many, several of my relationships lately with men, friends and partners and my father, they have started to talk about this underlying anger in women, me, and then other women um, around them. <laughs> you <And> specifically? <laughs> Me specifically. <laughs> um, and then other women around them. And, you know, it's like... We need to acknowledge that the anger is valid. That there is a reason why there is this resentment and anger underlying women's reality. It's so valid.
0: It's valid. It, there's so, on so many different levels, the sexual harassment being overt. But there's the, I mean, there's the subversive sexual misogyny. And that's where the anger comes up.
1: Because... Wherever we turn, you know, there are these subtle inequalities that we deal with every single day. You know, a man getting the job over us, higher pay for this man over us, even women not being able to really step in to their power and ask for their worth. We're not very good at that. And then the men question, well, why? Why can't you just do it? Like, you know, just ask for what you're worth. And we're always apologizing, and we don't really we can't find the words and we don't know how. We weren't raised in that way. So it's not in our conditioning to be at the same level as a man, but it's not our fault. It's not the men's fault, it's the system's fault. You know, and so that's where the anger and the resentment starts to boil up. And it's valid. And it's valid. And for us to be then discredited because we're angry feminists or angry women. That's where the problem starts. We need people to realize that,
0: oh my gosh, there is a reason for the anger. And we're going to address that. I think men have just been able to do whatever they want. And in some cases, men are perfectly aware of that. In other cases, maybe men aren't as aware that they've been able to do whatever they want. And within that are situations that women have, for so, I think for so long, normalized Mm -hmm. which we're now saying wait a minute this isn't normal this isn't acceptable and this is not okay and Mm -hmm. we don't have to keep putting up with this Mm -hmm. and that's what's really happening and for anybody and and with anything I mean this is a movement of course we're going to stumble of course some things are probably going to go too far but it should not ever at any point turn the movement backwards or stop the movement altogether because this is a really important movement that's happening right now. Women speaking up about sexual harassment and sexual inequality and basically misogyny manifesting itself is, um, is really important. And, and you better
1: believe it. They are going to try to pit us against one another. You know, they are going to try to say, oh, you know, they're just bashing men to bash men. That didn't really happen. They're going way too far. But we're not just talking about sexual harassment. Is it really sexual harassment or not? Is it really abuse or not? We're talking about women having equal rights and women being heard
0: and women being seen and valued. Yeah, and not valued, I will add, just for their sexuality. In Margaret Atwood's book, there's a moment where... um, Alfred realizes that she really doesn't have her sexual power that she had anymore, that there was some sort of power that she was able to wield through her sexuality. Well, there's a few moments in there where she kind of tries and um, it just sort of falls short because it's, you know, that ability for women to move through the world or advance through the world through their sexuality is no longer in place, but... Is that a good thing or a bad thing because really we shouldn't have to use our sexuality to move through the world and that's what we've been having to do so I think in a lot of cases men have taken that to their advantage for sure and even expect that you know what I mean absolutely I mean
1: this is how both genders act towards each other we sell our sexuality you know, it's like we can't see just two souls, genderless souls, standing in front of each other. You know, it's no, you actually have, you have a vagina and I have a penis. Well, I don't have a penis. <laughs> I have a vagina and you have a penis. You know, and I that means something. <laughs> <laughs> You're looking at me. Thank <laughs> God. <laughs> but I don't. Yeah, but we have to have a metaphorical penis occasionally <laughs> to live in this world. Yeah, but, you know, it's like we don't see just a soul. We see a gender, right? Just like we don't see, you know, we see a jet, ge- we see a race as well. We see color, we see gender. We don't see
0: souls. right.
1: I think all of this just really hits so close to home when women finally wake up to the reality and the true inequalities they're living in then it really goes deep you know I remember you know in my I think when I hit 30 I finally woke up and realized oh my god <laughs> the world isn't as I was taught it is and I looked around me and I saw all the men in all these power positions I worked so hard I was skilled I was smart perfectly capable but i wasn't getting paid what they were getting paid. I wasn't in the positions that they were were they were in. And i had this constant internal dialogue that i wasn't good enough. That i couldn't have that. You know, constant constant internal dialogue. And i know this goes this happens for many many women. Many women. You know, so this this stuff goes deep and and abuse and manipulation and assault and choose any word you know really choose any word I like the word sexual manipulation absolutely that's
0: one of those really subversive ones that are so hard to pinpoint and identify
1: it happens almost daily daily in our interactions with the opposite sex
0: And it can happen with somebody that you love the most in a relationship. And and it can be something that they're completely aware of or something that they're completely not aware of. That power dynamic has been set up through a system that normalizes Mm -hmm. a particular expectation for women and a particular treatment of women.
1: Man, this is... Man. I just said man. (laughs) Well, man is... (laughs) Just that, you know, even the language, the language that we speak is also oppressive for women and we don't even realize it, you know, and this is, the book really highlights this, the power of language. It was so, even the the women's names, that just blew me away, off Fred, off Glenn, right? So of a man, off, of, of Fred of Glenn, off Glenn, off Fred, you know? And it's like, when people get married, and marriage is a whole other thing, but when people get married,
0: you know, the woman gives up her name to the man. And yeah, the power of language, the fact that the women have been stripped of their power to read and to write, I mean, that's tremendous. And how interesting it is, the game of scrabble that she plays with the commander and and that whole experience that she has that he has a room of books that he's holding on to all of these magazines and he's using them as um, leverage for her Mm -hmm. because he knows of course that she'd be desperate to read although i don't think he knows quite how desperate ever he's never really fully aware of how desperate, you know, it, she would feel to be able to read something. But you take a woman's right to read away from her, which is interesting because we've gotten the right to read only very recently. You know, we've had long history of not being able to participate in any field of academic for so long. So we have had our voices removed for so long that it's only been one in the last century or two where we've been able to actually have that right to read
1: and it's still not extended to women all over the world I would say majority of women in this world don't have that right right right, they don't have access this is a privileged (laughs) white woman's (laughs) access and that is just so painful for me you know because I feel I feel the pain I feel the oppression I feel it. I feel the suffering. And that's where, you know, that's when the tears come to my eyes. And I have a hard time with this. It goes so deep.
0: I think that there's so much trauma that we've just repressed. Yeah. Generational trauma being one thing. But just the trauma in our lives. All all of the different manifestations of this kind of thing. Mm. You know... I, I remember sitting on my couch because I couldn't go to DC and we didn't have anything going on like this in Fairhope with the women's March. But I remember sitting on my couch, watching it on television and just pouring my eyes out. And I felt for the first time in my life and I'm 42, 43, I may be 43 now. I can't remember. But I remember for the first time in my life, I felt like finally, finally we're speaking out. My God, it has taken us this long. Because I've been speaking out in my mind and in my relationships with no, with nothing positive coming out of it. I've always been, I've always gotten resistance from the people that I've been in relationships with. They've called me. Prude was one of my ex's oh, yeah. favorite I've, words. To I've call gotten me. prude. I've prude. been a prude. <laughs> <laughs> and then French women, you know, brought up the word prude. And I really hate that word because I never felt like I was a prude. I always felt like I was just aware of what was happening, aware of how women were being manipulated and then, and then exploited. I mean, my God, the exploitation of women for commercial gain. Is just has just been tremendously, and the thing with this Me Too movement is, is that we're not even talking about that yet, really. Like Mm -hmm. that's a whole nother thing, and I can't wait for that to start, and I hope it happens. And not to say that I want to go back to a time what Margaret Atwood is presenting this sort of desexualized woman, you know, in these sort of Puritan garbs, these sort of uh, nun like garbs. That's not what I'm saying at all. And I don't see that as being the end of the road if you were to go down the trajectory of attacking the exploitation of women for commercial gain because I think that's something that we need to address and it needs to stop mm-hmm. happening. Mm-hmm. W- which is kind of like her mother, char- her char- June's mother, that character, w- the point where they're burning those magazines, those women's magazines mm-hmm. that are telling, that are... Exploiting women and telling women how they should be and how they should behave for the benefit of male um, sexuality. Mm -hmm. Male pleasure. Male pleasure. And that's another thing, this interesting episode where we see the commander falling back into this old idea of male sexuality where they go to the brothels and the prostitutes and he goes to that club and all the women are dressed in old costumes in, you know, lingerie and different things like that, basically being pranced around for the men's pleasure, you know, used sexually for men's pleasure, another type of slavery. And that's what he wants to do with Alfred, And that's his secret sexuality. And that it seems to be acceptable in this culture, even though the wife would probably not condone it had she, if she knew because there's no implication that she really knows anything about it. But still, like they have control, so who's going to tell them they can't do it? Right. I mean, it's like, even in the
1: name of protecting women and trying to change abuses and rapes and manipulations that were happening before Gilead was formed, nothing changes at all. Nothing changes at all. The men are completely in control. They still have their brothels. They have their, you know...
0: Sexual perversion. <laughs> <the baby laughs> sexual perversion.
1: They have, you know, several partners, a wife, polygamy, right there. So nothing changes. Women are con- continue to be oppressed um, in the name of trying to save women.
0: And Margaret Atwood uses uh, or says, nature demands variety for men that idea that she puts in the book that men will never change well, but this is just how natural. men are it's natural. it's
1: natural for men to have several lovers right. it's natural for men to objectify women you know it's natural for men to base their relationships on sexual gain on sexuality it's natural is it? I mean to some degree yeah sex Intimacy, that's
0: natural. But exploitation? Right. Raises the whole question of sexual perversions and in the porn industry. Yeah. You know, and how the porn industry caters to men's sexual perversions and tries to normalize them. And I'm not trying to say necessarily that sexual perversions should not be um, accepted. But I do think that we should look at the origin of sexual perversions in a way because is it natural to be sexually perverted or is it a product of culture to be sexually perverted? I would say it's probably a product of our culture to be sexually perverted and have all these weird fantasies that one can't fulfill a happy life until somehow or another they they enact this sexual fantasy and, and that's when, where women come in. Right. Well, they're chasing, chasing,
1: chasing pleasure because they've never actually had it. They don't actually know what true connection is. And if they actually put all those things aside and came into presence with their partner and learned about true sexuality, for the first time they may experience what true pleasure is through sex. You know, and this is what's happening in the book. There is no more pleasure at all. You know, the sex is had, you know, between Offred and the commander, no pleasure. Absolutely no pleasure, you know? There's no love, I think they even say it in the book, like, a love is a thing of the past, you know? And that is probably one of the reasons why fertility rates are so low. You know, people aren't connecting
0: based on love, it's on utility. Yeah, and Margaret Atwood talks about that in that interview, that audio interview, the the toxicity that we're the that we're doing to the environment as being a result of that. But and and maybe she would even say the same thing as what you're saying is that there's a level of toxic relationships Absolutely. as well, not just with the environment, but um, but with our relationships. Yeah, I mean, m- most of us don't even really know what that means. We have some sort of idea of our relationships. In the paradigm of somebody is controlling someone else in some way, or I'm Mm -hmm. really sure, but it always seems to be operating through that kind of a paradigm Mm -hmm.
1: Mm -hmm. power, control, fear, manipulation. Yes, (laughs) all of those things. (laughs) Yeah, and that's what's happening in society. That's what's happening on the macrocosmic level. That's what's happening on the microcosmic level in personal relationships. You know, and that needs to change, obviously. And then, and then, maybe we would stop chasing pleasure because we would have it right in front of our faces.
0: We'd know what it really is. Right. It seems like that would uh, be the natural (laughs) result (laughs) for men. I think if we keep telling men that it's okay for them to uh, say things like, oh, I'm just hardwired and I have to spread my seed because that's just the way I am. You know, th- I, I've heard so many lame excuses by men for porn consumptions, habitual porn consumptions, or just... Or cheating. Or, or cheating or any of those things. that they Polyamory. Have sh- yeah, or that it's such a struggle for them. But I think when I think about any of those relationships where I've been in that situation, if I think hard enough about it i really see and then now i have my own children two boys i really see a sad broken boy underneath that mm-hmm. you know that has been um to use a word that they like to use all the time programmed by society as if they have no responsibility or something mm-hmm. for their actions mm-hmm. they're just doing what society making them do or biology is making them do But when you get underneath that, it's really just a sad, like you said, like chasing something and never really understanding how to be happy and never seeing what's right in front of them. Mm -hmm. And it's funny because women kept saying for so long, if you just educate us, way back when Mary Wollstonecraft wrote The Vindication of the Rights of Woman*. if you just educate us, we'll be much better wives and companions for you. That idea so long ago... It was so revolutionary and so important. Can you imagine? You'd actually have an equal person in life if you just educate us. Mm-hmm. But that was—that was a much. threat. That was a threat. I was a threat. You know, we don't want an equal person. <laughs> no. We want somebody that we can subjugate and dominate, right? <laughs> <laughs> and who will have sex with us whenever we want to. That kind of thing. Like, God, it sucks that that's been our history for so long.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and then I was raised with the idea that those days were over. I was told that I had equal opportunity to my male counterparts. But when I got into the real world, I realized that that wasn't really the case. You know, and these... This oppression of women is so subversive sometimes and so subtle that it's hard to address. That we have to really look deep to address it.
0: Yep. One of the things that I think is also an interesting part of this book is the juxtaposition between uh, the negative aspects of this this um, a new society that's being created, of course, the absolute subjugation of the women, but also the seemingly positive aspects of it, which are that now we have a community of women. Women have regained uh, at least their role in midwifery and birthing and the women in the birthing communities. Wifery. I'm sorry. Midwifery. I can never say that word because it has to <laughs> be. Midwivery. Midwifery. Midwifery. But women have regained their role, which was, you know, taken away from them. So this idea of women in their specific communities where they can all get together and support one another. So that's present in this dystopian society, not for any of the right reasons, but it's still present nonetheless. Um, so that's one thing that she sort of brings into here to the to the book, and which I think raises an interesting question about what her perception was on women and motherhood during that time period because I think there was, I think in second wave feminism, there was certainly an attack on women in that role of motherhood, especially as women were fighting for equal rights in the workforce And, and the ability to not have to do the traditional role of motherhood. Okay, so Margaret Atwood talks about, you know, this throwback to the Puritan days where women were being burned at the stake and the witch trials, which, of course, we all know about, you know, we've all seen those little snippets on television shows or movies where women dressed in Puritan clothes have been pulled out and thrown in some scene in the woods where they're getting ready to be burned at the stake. We've seen that. But I mean, that was much more worldwide widespread and for much longer than that short period of time in American history. I and mean, it, it goes as far as yeah. back Women being persecuted and attacked and burned for either doing things, uh, trying to be controlled and ousted and whatever it was that they had some form of control in or going against the system or resisting or standing out and speaking out against anything. Right. And I
1: this is it's also so abstract for us. The witch trials, you know, oh, that was in our past. Oh, yeah, that happened. But. That was a long time ago. Well, it wasn't a long time ago. And it really did happen. And it wasn't just there, it was all over the world. And I think what makes me so, you know, upset is that the book and the series highlights this and brings it into reality so fully. It's like, oh my God, this really did happen. Right. This really did happen. You know, women being publicly murdered publicly shamed you know and worse for trying to
0: speak up right and to even go back even further I mean women have had to speak up in ways against things that they shouldn't even have had to have spoken up against you know there's this sort of in the book this hint of women slowly like losing their ability to have a bank account women being fired from their jobs these sort of slow progressions of women's rights being taken away from them. But in our history, we've actually had to fight to be legally identifiable outside of our husband as separate entities legally from our husbands, the idea of coverture that was prevalent for so long for women where women were the legal property rights of their their husbands, mm-hmm. they had no voice, could not vote, could not really work outside of the home, could not legally get a divorce. I mean, it was legal to rape Prostitutes. it was legal for husbands to rape or divorce their women if they withheld from having sex with them. I mean, there's all these things that are in place. So women speaking out and then, of course, being persecuted for that resistance or for that speaking out, which we don't get enough of that visually in our media and our mainstream culture. We get plenty of movies about slaves, and we've all seen horrific scenes of that, which we should because that was an incredibly dark period of our history um same thing with the nazis in germany we get a lot of movies about that Mm -hmm. but we don't get anything about women being burned at the stake we get little snippets and i think the second season of the handmaid's tale i just watched the first episode i mean they really did an amazing job with the scene and i don't want to like give it away because you haven't seen it yet but there's a scene where the women get lined up to be hung And it is so incredibly intense as it should be because what we've always gotten in the past has just been something that doesn't even really shake us. I've Mm -hmm. never been shaken Mm -mm. by any scene of a woman being burned at the stake on television because it's always just been like a, a, a few minutes of something as a side note. We've never gotten a movie, at least I've never seen one. Maybe there's one out there I just don't know about. But we certainly don't see that very often. So it's Mm-mm. like history wants to whitewash and forget its persecution of women. And not only in this scene in The Handmaid's Tales, it's hanging. But what's even more brutal than being hung is being burned alive. Mm-hmm. Like how many of us could actually watch that mm-hmm. now? We would be horrified. But people stood by and watched public executions like that. And this is the book. I know, This is what they do in the crazy. book. To think, and I can understand why she wants to go back to that time period and and reawaken that. That needs to be looked at again. That needs to come back into our discussions about history again. So you
1: wonder why women are angry. You wonder why women are resentful. We have to acknowledge this. This is a real thing. This really happened.
0: I know. And most women don't even know their own history, really, because... You have to seek it. You know, that's what we talked about with our book club. One of the reasons why I really was motivated to start this book club was to learn my history because it wasn't given to me in school. And the only way I got it in college is if I took a class specifically for it. Mm -hmm. So, and I'm still making up for lost times. There's so much I don't know that we're working through in this book club. But like, I would say, unless you're seeking it, the general population of women don't know. And we don't have to intellectually know.
1: We can just open up to feeling yeah. because, you know, there is so much right now in the, eclect- in the collective unconscious that is running through us, running through women, intensifying now with the Me Too movement, with women coming together. All you have to do is open up to feel and you feel it. You feel it, you know, and this is why they say we're on the precipice of change, you know, because when women start to come together and find voice through solidarity, things will change. We're half of the world.
0: Yeah, it's so true. I think that as long as we keep moving in this trajectory that we have where we no longer are competing with one another and we're working together, that we will see positive changes and we can change the future. I think that probably there have been waves of this that um, where women have been more worked together more, but I think that we are such a large part of the population now that we have such outreach mm-hmm. that it would be very difficult. I can't imagine what it would take for us to fall into something like this, like The Handmaid's Tale. I mean, on the one hand, it seems so scary. It seems like Margaret Atwood has done a great job <laughs> of like capitalizing on. Oh, the the trajectories that we're on but as she says you know meeting them till their full completion but i think that hopefully i don't know i mean i w- i prefer to be more hopeful that that we are so we are so what's the word solidified now that we wouldn't do that I don't well know. and it doesn't even matter
1: if it's going to happen or not the point is it has happened the point is to some degree this is the reality for many women oh, in yeah. this world. Yeah, That's the right. point.
0: <laughs> I know. So It's, it's like easy <laughs> for us to say this yeah. while we're in the United States. Again, we're both educated white women, you know, with privilege. But this is also not the case for so many women across the world. It's, it's easy to not acknowledge that, but you're right. Like, wow. And this is why I say it's really important for us to feel,
1: to open up to feeling this true, this true suffering and oppression of women. Because unless we feel and get angry, get angry about it, and then grieve, work through those emotions, you know, and then get to the other side, we're just denying the fact that this is happening in our world. And it's going to make us sick. So it's actually healthy for a woman to be angry. She goes through anger, and then grief, and then on the other side, she has energy to change things, an awareness, you know, a felt experience.
0: That's a great point. I like that, because my instinct is to (laughs) try to repress anger for the sake of not being angry, because we're taught to not be angry, always always to be positive. Well, of course. um,
1: The men don't want us to get angry.
0: Absolutely not. It's problematic. Yeah. I know. I've had some issues in my relationship, you know, with a lot of the changes that I've been trying to make. Again, I remember back with our, our podcast with River, you know, you're not you're not making the change, you're just being present. But in the act of being present, in the act of waking up, all of these things, I mean, to be present is to wake up and to realize what's going on and how and why you feel the way that you feel and to be able to have speak to that. Mm-hmm. is so important but that's in my experience not something I've been able to do really very well till recently and I can't do it in all areas of my life I still have problems with you know my parents and you know certain people that that think very differently for me mm-hmm. you know that are still in that what I say is a closed-minded trapped product of all of this that they are unaware that they're stuck in mm-hmm. absolutely well and in the book you know, that's how
1: Alfred goes through her, her daily life. She's not allowed to have emotions. If she had emotions, you know, <laughs> she'd be taken to the colonies. Right. So, of course, in our reality, we're going to come up against angry feminists as being a bad thing. Why would we be allowed to have emotions? If we were allowed to have emotions, if, if emotions were normalized and accepted, then we'd be able to work through them, or we'd be able to use them to activate change, use them as fuel for the fire. Right. So we're told that angry feminism, angry feminists, is a bad thing, but actually, it's perfectly healthy if we can move through that.
0: Because the other half of that is that it's really important for men to be on board with feminism as well. I certainly don't want to exclude men through my feminist anger.
1: Well men should get angry too but then. I
0: think yeah. If men could get angry about the state of
1: the world, you <laughs> yeah. know, things would actually really change if people truly
0: got angry. Yes. About the state of the world. That's a nice way of of addressing it and like focusing it, I think. That's a good way of doing it because it's not a combat it's not like You're saying men suck and I hate men. No. You're saying I'm angry
1: that all of this is... Absolutely. I'm not saying I'm angry at men. I'm saying I'm angry at the situation at hand. That's the thing, you know. And so then we have compassion for people's emotions because we understand, oh, my gosh, of course, it's valid. It's valid. And, of course, in the book, none of that is allowed because you allow somebody to have emotions...
0: And then you have an uprising. Then you have an <laughs> uprising. <Yeah. laughs>
1: so they do everything they can to keep a lid on that. And through the training of the handmaids, you know, not training, it's basically, what's the word?
0: Uh, outside of torture? coercion <laughs> I don't know. Brainwashing. Brainwashing. It's brainwashing. I don't think they're effectively brainwashing them, though. <laughs> I think they're just torturing them.
1: <laughs> True. It's total but torture. Yes. And so I feel like sometimes, in a sense, in our relationships, our current relationships, when we're told about, you know, the emotional woman or the angry woman and told that that's not okay, not acceptable, in a sense, it's very similar to a control tactic that they're using in the book. I think that's what I'm trying to make, the connection there. Yeah,
0: I see that connection. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. you know, it's, it's, it's repression, yeah, certainly, um, which is motivated by so many different things, but disguised under, you know, religion and, and that kind of stuff and what's appropriate behavior. Mm-hmm. And, of course, uh, throughout history, the way to control and subjugate people is to take away mm-hmm. their freedom to express themselves creatively, politically, spiritually, every aspe- uh, aspect of their life you know so i think it's interesting though when i think about the division in women i think that women are divided among a few lines though and i think two of those lines have really been uh, highlighted in this book one being religion women are divided um Based on their religious beliefs, and I think a lot of women are divided based on their beliefs about abortion and reproductive rights for women. And unfortunately, I wish that we could all get on the same page because I think that that's one of the reasons why you know people like Trump will continue to get elected in this sort of uh, you know backwards um, steps that some people would have us take or might continue to happen for a while. You know, I don't know what it would take, you know, in this book, it, it, it's certainly a situation that could potentially happen where fertility is low. And so people are being, becoming desperate to reproduce. And then, so all of a sudden, um, you know, abortions would be even more frowned upon. But within that is still this idea of women not having control of their reproductive rights. And that's incredibly dangerous, in my opinion. Whether you are for or against abortion, just simply women not having control over their reproductive rights is another way, just like taking a woman's voice away, to subjugate and control them. Mm-hmm. And it has shown, it has proven to be that through history. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's not me just saying that uh, ideologically. It is historically true.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because to some degree, we've always had that. In the past, it was herbal remedies. Now it's abortion and birth control, you know. But regardless, to have rights over to have the freedom of choice whether to or not to i mean that's the most important thing
0: right but i do think the book is interesting in the sense that um it, it is basically taking the reproductive rights away from these women and forced them into having children for the sake of uh perpetuating of course human life because it's being threatened, but not looking at the reasons why the fertility has dropped in the first place and not making those changes, you Mm -hmm. know, the answer is just enslavement of other women.
1: Yeah. And it's really interesting. Fertile women. Yeah. It's really interesting too, because, um, the men are never blamed.
0: Oh yeah. (laughs) The commanders, (laughs) the commander is completely sterile and he's never blamed.
1: And so the commander just gets one handmaid after another.
0: Yeah, catering again to not only his sexual desire, but, you know, his physiology that won't even allow him to have children in the first place. Yeah. So it's pointless. Which is where Nick comes in, who's <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> an interesting character, too, mm-hmm. um, who seems to be somewhat sympathetic. But still a little on the edge of that sympatheticness, too. He still seems to be someone who, in another circumstance, still might be slightly misogynistic as well. It's hard to say. It's hard to say what his motivations are. I don't think it's really clear in the book.
1: And he doesn't really have a choice either because he's not on the top.
0: Yeah, that's true. He doesn't have a choice either.
1: I mean, he has to be careful how he acts and what he says and what he does. Right. Right. So, I mean, he's just a pawn in the whole game, just as Alfred is, or June. Yeah, June.
0: I don't know how I feel about giving her a name. I know it
1: doesn't feel right, since in the book she's in not the given book a she's name. Not given
0: a name. Now, uh, of course, they're creating a second season, and uh, that is where the book ends, and the new writing begins in the second season. And so they're really addressing, I mean, she's got, she she has a last name in the second season. And so they're expanding on that. But I always thought it was really interesting in the book that we never really knew her name, that she was never given a name. And also, she doesn't escape. It seems as though she, d- she the only thing that we have is the book. We don't know what really happens to her. There's no happy ending for Offred in the book. Mm-hmm it was unsatisfying and satisfying at the same time, unsatisfying in the sense that there is no escape for Alfred, but satisfying in the sense that it seems more realistic. Mm-hmm. So that concludes our show today. Thank you so much for listening. If you like us, please subscribe to our podcast and give us some positive feedback.
1: Follow us on Facebook at femsouth And for more information, check out our website, FemmeSouth.com, where you can find the podcasts and our book reviews. Hope to see you there and keep listening. You're on FemmeSouth.